Mana 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 this is Social Disgusting. Welcome to Social Disgusting, a podcast where my guests and I discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves. I'm Brandon, aka Brandon. I hope you're well. My guest is a writer, a director, a producer, and an actor, a dare say multi-hyphenate, who made his feature directorial debut with 2020 Scare Me, which he also wrote, produced, and co-starred in. He followed that up just last year with Werewolves Within, which is also so, so good. In the last few weeks, has two new films out, producing and acting in Blood Relatives and co-starring in A Wounded Fawn, both now available on Shudder, as well as Scare Me, for that matter. Please welcome Josh Rubin. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I love that you were like, uh, you're just talking about the hellscape and saying, I hope you're well. I like the, the two tones <laughs> because that's how I feel about the last three years. It's like, are we okay? Yeah, exactly. It's also where I think, uh, I feel like as I finish that sentence, my mood or just the state of things could change too. So it kind of yeah provides the flexibility dime. that maybe we need because I'm kind of like fragile these days. Oh, same, 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 uh, same for, I think, I think we kind of been through the ringer, you know, we're all, we're all, uh, we, we've all well earned our, uh, our fragility. Dare, Dare says the Caucasian filmmaker, we've earned our right to be fragile. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the pool quote already. That's perfect. I'll lead with that. Yeah. We'll amplify this podcast and, and for your films. Love. Yeah. Yeah. Appeal to all the great people. Perfect. 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 I agree. perfect. Thank you, Mr. Rogan. <laughs> yes. Yes. He's doing the, the, the big important stuff, like making sure that entertainment journalists question The Rock, whether he's using steroids or not. These exactly deeply right. important people. Yeah, we should go after. We should go after uh, Dwayne. You know what I mean? I think if, if there's anybody, we need to be skewering, raking over the coals. I agree, and also, you know, I mean, how else are entertainment journalists going to win their Pulitzer? So that's what I journalism agree. is today. You know, we got to do it. I agree. Thank Nature you, the Mr. Beast. Carlson. Yeah, I <laughs> got to start somewhere with this podcast because that's like how these work. Talked about it a little bit, but the deeply unfair question: How are you, and how have you been, for that matter? Oh, that's a great question. See, now no one's asked me how I am and how I've been. I'm telling you, there's been such a little overlap on this uh, press tour of 50 shows I booked myself on, and that is the that is the million dollar question. I'm pretty good. I have to say, I, I'm feeling quite. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want really, really to get hyperbolic and say self actualized. Maybe these days, probably could use you know a, a million more dollars to add to my fifteen dollars to my name but uh no i'm i'm pretty good i got married i've got two of these little indies out i'm i'm working with people i've, I've always wanted to to work with and feeling valued I, I think if anything you want to balance the work and life lives as best you can and as evenly and fluidly as you can so if anything i could probably be better about giving myself and my my loved ones a bit more more time take the walk for your own body and take the walk with your with your love and your buds that's not that well first of all by the way congratulations on the marriage thank you it's very exciting but also it's nice that everything you just described sounds like just the definition of contentment there's still so much to be done but in the moment you're like well this is going pretty good that's pretty I nice. think so. I yeah, you know, I I I think so. I I'm definitely one to get anxious. Maybe it's just the caffeine that I'm like not doing enough. Hence, maybe what looks like a lot of output, but despite output, I'm one to go. Well, shit, it's not enough. And you don't want to, as a clairvoyant once told me, you don't want to miss this. You don't want to miss it. Like you don't want to miss this life kind of flying past you because you're so preoccupied with. I don't know, putting a stamp on your existence. But no, Sage I feel... Advice. I like it. Yeah, I'll, I'll say. I mean, you know, I paid for it. My dad says, psychics <laughs> are entertainment. But I, I, I take it like an accountant's words. Very serious. No, uh, I do feel quite uh, quite content. It's kind of wild. But I'm an adaptable personality. You know, I don't I don't need much. I'm not a material person. I don't think I've, I've rarely spent money on clothes. So much of what I've worn is like free or what I've moved here with from New York years ago. Although I, I did buy Fangoria sweatpants. But this is the thing that happens when you make a couple movies or whatever people send you free shit. Like, you know, Super Yaki, which is this incredible t-shirt wardrobe company. This guy, Andrew Ortiz, he's so cool. He just sent me a shitload of Dark Man and Sam Raimi apparel. And I was like, oh my God, well, I'm going to have to wear this every day. That's amazing. But, uh, 
No, it's I, I'm feeling very, very content. I could probably afford to grow up a little bit, you know, but what does that really mean to, to you know to be an adult? This is a non subtle transition, so let me just point it out and then we'll do it. But this week I've had the full on Josh Rubin cinematic experience. Monday I rewatched Scare Me. Tuesday, rewatched Werewolves Within and Wounded Fawn. Wednesday, yesterday, rewatched or saw for the first time for that matter, Blood Relatives. Then I rewatched Dark Man. <laughs> I watched the short films Freddy Daryl and Tond. Wow. Oh man, deep cuts, deep cuts. There's yeah, there's actually there's there's one you're even missing, Daryl. Okay, which say, one? Which is, which is one called Ollie. I'm curious what you think of it. It's actually starring Henry Zabrowski, who is one of the three stars of the last podcast on the left, one of the best actors. Uh, and funniest people alive. And it was my first narrative short film. So if you can find Ollie, I think if you type in Ollie Josh Rubin, um, O L L I E, it'll come up. And it's just, I just was like, one day I was like, hey, you know, college humor videos are really taking a toll on me because I really didn't have much control over what I was, what I would shoot. Like when I worked at college humor, I made thousands of videos for them. Um, so I was like, I want to do a narrative short following just some weirdo around Greenpoint, Brooklyn. And that's, uh, that's what came of it. So I, I'd be curious to see, but it, wow, you, you did, you took a deep dive into the Josh Rubin universe. Like my, my, my God, um, what a, what a weird thing also to hear and kind of lay out your filmography and just kind of look at it and be like, oh man, why is it, uh, why is it all so, um, it's so dark. <laughs> <laughs> so, so much of it's just like what dark oddball characters what dark material but hey i mean you know i didn't grow up thinking i was going to do uh lindy lohan <laughs> oh that's my plumber right fair enough here. oh nice cameo too it's funny that this is one of the notes i had written down was josh is a real practitioner of the dark weirdo character arts yes you're very good at fair. it and i'm sure it's very fun to play them though like I'm sure with any character, whether they're like insular and straight laced or like full on outward weirdo, mm -hmm. there's plenty of gold to mine there and it can be a lot of fun. But I imagine those two, the dark weirdo is a lot more fun to play. They're so fun to play and I, I could I could probably dig for videos that date as far back as, you know, the, the mid 90s, I'd say mid to late 90s. <clears throat> when I first got my hands on a camcorder and was shooting videos with my buddies in upstate New York where I would like copy Philip Seymour Hoffman and Boogie Nights, but wearing a completely different hairdo, still a comb over and like a weird zip up talking to myself in the mirror. Um, I, for some reason, I just always responded to the black sheep kind of darker, darker oddballs. And probably why I love actors like Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman and you know, um, especially loved like the Robin Williamses of the world, especially back then, because they take swings and play darker people and play, um, you know, uh, folks who are funny and folks who are scary. Um, yeah, I don't know what it is, but especially just as a, as a, someone who came out of comedy, that was just like, yo, though, I, I'll play, uh, I'll play this the the um, you know stinky weirdo with a limp. Like that's just like what I. Uh, I don't know where I feel comfortable in most of my body. And then, you know, it's just funny every once in a while where, you know, or especially with wounded fawn for like Travis Stevens to come out and be like, you could be a handsome serial killer. And I'm like, I never thought of myself as handsome anything. I always thought of myself as a limping weirdo, you know, <laughs> but uh, here we are. I also just, I don't know if somebody were to present that to me, that same statement, I'd be like, oh man, I'm, I'm honored. Yeah. That sounds great. <laughs> That's really like, thank you, gosh! Like, I that, what a nice compliment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I truly, I, I, I'm not, not gonna, not gonna turn it down, not gonna knock it at all. It is, it is a compliment. But I never, like, you know, sixth grade Josh never considered himself, uh, or never could could imagine himself. Um, oh, I don't know, pretty. Uh, <laughs> but as I get older, I'm like, wow, it's it's nice to feel pretty. I guess that is a nice thing. I always felt nice uh, being limpy and weird. It's funny too that you you mentioned like uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Joaquin Phoenix, and this I'm not trying to pigeonhole them because there's so much more than just this. But I've always gravitated, especially later in life for whatever reason, to watching the more character actor types. Yes, yes. I think they're just they're so fascinating to me, and you know maybe just more inherently interesting because. Maybe it's what my brain constitutes as more like overt acting, I guess, than maybe yeah. like mo movie stars. But 
character True. actors are just what they're just the, the mvps of any movie like they make movies as good as they are because they come in and just steal scenes just nail it and then they go about oh, their yeah. business sometimes it's just incredible I, is, I love this is, i i agree i mean you know it's why i loved the process of werewolves within um i got to you know shoot in new york and cast like the oh, whoops plumber uh, cameo i got to cast like the uh you know, New York utility actors, like the, you know, the working character acting community of New York, like Glenn Fleshler, who not only is, you know, an Armenian mobster on Barry, um, but is also the serial killer and true detective. Um, like, He's incredible. He is incredible. And then you put a wig on him and like, you look like Jason Momoa. Like, how does he, he just, like disappears? You know? I know. I didn't realize that was him at first, the first time I'd watched the movie. But then when I realized it was him, I like lit up because I'm like, even in like a most violent year, he's so good in that. He's just a guy who makes everything better. I don't know whether I'd seen him in a ton of stuff or just didn't notice him prior to True Detective season one, but I was so mm -hmm. happy to see him in that movie. He's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, tr truly, I, um, I just didn't quite know where he came from. Then you look him up and he just like, you know, he, his, his filmography dates back and back and back into his, his young man. He was just so sweet, just so willing to tell the stories about working with like Michael Shannon on Waco or, you know, what it was like working on Barry or any, any number of things. And it's like, you know, then I had, didn't even get into like, Kathy Curtin, who's in just about everything and just down, super down, down to do everything. Michael Chernus, who I saw in an off-Broadway play called The Aliens, and now he's in Severance. He's like finally starting to get sort of household recognition, which yeah. is super exciting. Harvey Guillen was only in season two of maybe What We Do in the Shadows, or maybe had just wrapped season one. I was like, oh, this guy's just hysterical. I love his look. And on and on. Not Michael, Michaela Watkins. I mean, forget about it, you know? And, uh, yeah, George Basil, who was on this podcast, such a nice guy, so talented. Oh. He's so, so funny. I mean, he's my homie. He was my first one. He, I, 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 I brought the movie to him, and I said, you're, you're going to be in this. Uh, he's like, so good. Are old buddies. Yeah, and I was just like, I knew that if shit hit the fan, I could get a hug from George at the end of the day, or we can go get a red <laughs> wine and just commiserate about how awful a director I was. I mean, we just talked in the same way that we're talking now with two disembodied voices, but even just hearing his voice and talking to him he has such a welcoming energy even just yes. through audio that i can't imagine what it is in person either like it must be it must just emanate off of him it really does george actually has this um he has it's is there's a magnetic warm charisma that's what it really is he is mm. so welcoming and warm and he's he's the one to go out of his way to shake the hands of everyone who's in his immediate proximity to make them feel welcome it almost makes me feel like I need to do better. Like, I, yeah. oh my God, yeah, I should introduce myself to my mailman. I should, I should, you know, like go out of my way to talk to this person that he makes everybody feel welcome. Everyone's his brother, everyone's his sister, everyone's his sibling, everyone. And, and that's, the, that's the way it's always been. And I saw him in what I thought was one of the funniest, like best done promos years ago for something called HBO Comedy Fetish. It was like basically promoting like all of HBO's new comedy shows. And he was played this like billionaire oddball sitting on a throne, um, like next to the ocean. And uh, that was the first time I saw this guy. And I was like, wow, he's like Zach Galifianakis's sort of scarier brother i love this guy's energy and then we got to work together on a on a weird kind of independent pilot and he just you know just became my homie i'm i'm so long overdue to see him i feel like it's just a matter of time and in, in a michael Chernis sort of way until he yeah. breaks more mainstream yeah. and to your point yeah. about michael Chernis, he's so good in patriot which is such a great show <sighs> yeah he is what a great show what a fun tonal exercise i can't that's a tough yeah truly Truly. I love that. That was the other note I had about when I was watching where it was within. I took a few notes. Great ensemble blocking. Constant jokes. Constantly hitting. Such a good script. Delightful editing. Sam Richardson is an absolute star. Yes, he is. Great to see Glenn Fleshler. Love Catherine Curtin's whimpering delivery. <laughs> Man, she's so good. In, I mean, everybody's great in that, mo that movie. I'm not trying to say one is better than the other, but her delivery is fantastic. Especially when yeah, she was like, I, delivering I tea to the scientist. And she was in mourning at the moment, and her delivery oh of that God. I've watched, I re I replayed that several times. It's so funny. I mean, like the just Rebecca, who's absolutely genius, and her 
the timing that they both have, I'd say Rebecca is more, I, well, no, they're both inherently comedians, but the way that they work together with Rebecca just being such a cold, almost spectrum-esque scientist and Janine only wanting connection, it was such a funny, yeah. specific dynamic. It, it, could, it could have been an improv exercise. They were amazing together. The scientists wanting to sh just shut any form of communication down immediately. And Catherine Curtin's character just desperately wanting, like telegraphing, I just want the the least amount of connection. Just anything. Yeah, yeah. Just something. Consolation even, anything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's real. Oh, it was so good. I also wrote down, because I was trying to watch it, because I've seen it a couple times before this, but I was trying to watch it about like, what all did you get to do as a director making this movie? The thing that really stuck out was you got to design or work on the design of a werewolf. I did. I did. And that that's cool as hell. It really is. You know, I actually, I'll never forget going to the Culver City Hotel and meeting our creature designer, whose name is Constantine Sakaris. Like, what a name, first of oh. all. And Constantine works on just about everything. Every Marvel uh, creature, villain, monster, plumber cameo, every kind of fantasy flick. He just does everything. And so, spoilers abound, when Constantine and I sat down, he was so excited, you know, because he was, he, I don't think we, we were able to, to really afford him. He came aboard as a, a favor, one of the producers who previously had worked with Sony. He was just so excited to be a part of it because we were doing a different kind of werewolf. And uh, the designs he made based on the actress's looks were really exciting, how we talked about approaching it and how just me learning, just from a learning perspective, sitting there and then talking about how he'd create certain prosthetics, how they would translate to the actual actor. Plumber cameo, that was really rad. In retrospect, I think, you know, the <laughs> it's, it's very tough to make a creature movie, very tough to make a werewolf movie, probably really tough to make a Bigfoot movie, which I'd like to do someday. They're really, really tough to do. And I think in retrospect, you know, with any of the criticism that we've gotten about the werewolf or the werewolf design has to do with how we all kind of sat there going, oh my God, this werewolf is cute. <laughs> yeah. We, we were like, once all the makeup <clears throat> was on our stunt performer, we we're like, holy shit. I mean, this looks incredible. They're kind of cute. And so now, like, as you could do with anything, if you're a writer, if you're a director, any kind of artist, certainly if you're a, a, you know, a novelist, you could go back and noodle and noodle and noodle on anything you've ever done. I think if I could go back and redo the, the ending sequence, I would have it be a flicker, almost like Werewolf by Night, you know, how they did a lot in Silhouette. I would yeah. love to go back and just have a kind of electric, electric flicker, which, which essentially happened, um, or we could have, we could have justified with the howling, which, you know, made some of the, uh, some of the pinball machines clash and crash and the glass break with the sonic boom. But, but I, I'm super proud of it. I mean, I, I, the fact that people talk about rewatching that and rewatching it as a holiday movie, rewatching it as a comfort watch, like that's the goal. That's the dream. No joke. I, but I know what you mean, though. Like, just the, the concept of that Jaws-esque approach allows the viewer to fill in the, the gaps with their own imagination, which is arguably more powerful than anybody could ever be in terms of oh, yeah. making something. You know, like the paranormal activities of it all. Oh, yeah. Because that movie messes me up. It yeah, messes totally me so bad. Absolutely, I love yeah. it, even, but even, it's very even effective. Part two fucked me up. I, absolutely, because yeah. you just you don't know what that thing's gonna look like. It, it leaves the demon up to your imagination. It's so clever. It's really, really yeah. smart. Yeah, truly. And to your point, like uh, I watched three in uh, October, three werewolf movies, all of which I did not realize came out within like five months of each other in 1981, and that was Wolfen, The Whoa. Howling. Wolfen, The Howling, and American Werewolf in London. Whoa, no shit. I didn't know that. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, uh, and uh, I didn't even know Wolfen existed. And it's a really, oh, it, it's an interesting movie. Great. Yeah, it really, really is. It really is. And it was like, in that, it was like real wolves, right? It was real wolves. They did a couple things that a movie hadn't really done that much of at the time, which was they used like thermography, which ended up being used a handful of years later for Predator. Yeah, that's right. That's right that thermal imaging type type situation yeah. they also did yeah yeah they also did like handicam for the first person perspective of the wolf right which is really right. really interesting you know and the other side note is that uh allegedly it's the only movie dustin hoffman petitioned or worked hard to get in 
and then was fully denied. What? Oh, I had no, as uh, as the uh, oh gosh, as, as Albert uh, Finney's character. Yeah, Finney's part. No. The director. It's his only feature. Before that, he became known as directing the very famous Woodstock documentary. What? That's crazy. Yeah. So it's his only feature he's ever made. And when Dustin Hoffman lobbied to be in it, he denied him saying, no, I want to work with my favorite actor, Albert Finney. And so there you go. Wow, dude. I mean, bless him. Like, Finney is legend. But can you imagine if, like, like Hoffman in a genre film, I I don't think I can think of one beyond, like, Sphere, you know, that (laughs) Michael Crichton movie with the book I love, but not not, uh, the same hit. Yeah, I rewatched that movie the other day. It's got its moments, you know, but they all can't be, they all can't be perfect, but... Ugh, could have been such a moment for an octopus, you know? <laughs> it would have been fun to see, like, 1981 still in, like, his kind of twitchy acting phase. Yeah, yeah. Seeing Hoffman totally. in that, that would have been really cool. I did want to bring up real fast Scare Me. Before I, wa- I watched it, and I was re- just remember having seen it the year prior, at first I was thinking, it's like, this is probably the fir- ideal first feature because you have minimal locations, you have a car, you're outside, you have an indoor location with the cabin, four characters... A lot is done in post-production. But then I was also thinking, oh yeah, he's also, he wrote it, you directed it, you produced it, and you co-starred in one of those four roles. And maybe I'm sure like being on a slightly smaller scale helps that, but it also feel, it just feels like an ideal first film to make, to really wade in those feature-length waters. It was for me, for sure, because we probably could have even done it for less money. Like, if if it was a non-union movie, it would have been far cheaper. Um, it was definitely cheaper to get me, you know, as writer, director, and actor. I think I I uh, I deferred pretty much all payments. You know, I was the cheapest option to quote unquote star in it, and and we were so blessed that I was remotely interested. I sort of I won't say I barely knew her. I knew her through her husband, but we certainly hadn't worked together. As it uh, coincidentally worked out i ended up having like an under five in you're the worst like probably six months before the movie just like out of the total the total blue and uh yeah it really was it was ideal for me i mean as someone who's like a theater kid and a horror kid and was just like you know if i'm gonna ever star in one movie because i thought for sure that would be the only time i ever would i didn't expect wounded fawn to ever you know be slid into my my twitter dms by travis stevens which it was nice you know i figured well let hey let me let me use this as an opportunity to showcase what weird specific things i can do which is like what you should do as a filmmaker don't don't try and do anything derivative do what stinks of you um but with as little resources as possible and that's that's certainly what i did well it also makes sense too because like if you're it's your first feature so you're you need to um Establish expectations for what you're wanting to do and hoping to do. Because I imagine, though, you know, depending on how a movie can go to, it's it seems like, and this is probably a good problem to have, but you can get pigeonholed pretty easily, especially maybe in genre films. But to be able to work on a scale that allows you to really put your imprint, man, that's a that's a win. That's an absolute. I win. think so. I think so. Yeah, you know, and I, I still like it's Sundance season. People are finding out, you know, posting their announcements and stuff. I still can't believe that my first film got into Sundance and it was the last one, quote unquote, for a couple of years, you know, that we had no idea that COVID was right around the corner. And I, I had, it was such a, such a dreamlike fury of events. Like, you know, I was just like, well, we're just going to make a movie because, you know, I wanted to scratch that off the bucket list. And then it gets into Sundance. Shutter acquires it in advance of Sundance. And then, you know, I jump right into prep on werewolves within like on my second movie immediately and so there was this like hot moment and then suddenly it just all comes to a, a grinding halt march 13th i'd say that's that's a whirlwind because it was yeah to your point you were there like last week of january mm-hmm. 2020 mm-hmm. they announced right around then that werewolves within was starting production in february i didn't realize you already had distribution so you got to luxuriate in the Sundance experience. I did. I, I, I also had to leave. I mean, I was there for all 48 hours. It was kind of crazy. I, I flew in. I went to our premiere. I had kind of a day to do interviews, and then I was out. I didn't even get to see Chris Redd, who came right after me because he was doing SNL. And he was like, I'm not going to miss my first my first uh, Sundance. Um, it was so fast. But, I mean, it's just... It's just a dream. I probably, you know, I don't. I don't think I anyone should you know, dream or former cameo have to go to uh, to more than one because it is such a circus. And sure. I, I would never want to go probably if I didn't have a film there because you can get kind of 
you know, lost in the fury of it. But going and having a film, they roll out the red carpet for you. You got free stuff. The amount of like free swag I brought to my PAs and my coordinators and my crew <laughs> back in, in Woodstock um, when I flew back for uh, for werewolves was just you know, it was, uh, it, it was heavy. I mean, I, I was like, when I was, one, I was like giving away like Amazon fire sticks and beanies and scarves and everybody's like, Oh shit. Oh, this is cool. You know, <laughs> but I, I certainly don't need all that swag. Like I said, I don't, I don't need much, but dark man swag. You will definitely take and right. Uh, yeah. I've taken the dark man swag and I'm bursting out of my little condo. I, you know, I have a shelf. My office is a shelf. You know, my wife is like, please, like you don't need two dark man action figures. My best friend um, who ordained my, my wedding, my buddy Charlie McQuaid, he's actually Snake with Arms in uh, Little Demon, um, which is an amazing animated show that nice. plays a bunch of characters. He got me like a bus advertisement size poster that is rolled up. It's actually from the early 90s, like when the movie came out. It's Holy the real shit. thing. And it is all rolled up into my closet. And I'm just like banging my head against the wall. I'm so eager to bring that in. The day that I can get out of my like tiny little spot and go to an office where I can blow the thing up and just be like, yep, that's true. I have a dark man poster sitting on my wall. Like, I want Mike Flanagan's room. You know, you catch glimpses of it on TikTok. You're like, holy shit. Now that's a, that's a den. I want my weirdo den. I want my full size, you know, costumed figures and mannequins and busts and stuff. That'd be, that'd be the real sign of success. But first I got to write like Flanagan does. And that is uh, that dude is a genius. So yeah. And he just, he just announced his new deal this morning. But- I know. So that he's, cool. he wants to make five seasons of Dark Tower and then two features. Yeah. And he's one of the few people I'd bet on could make that, could get to five seasons and make those two features. He's, I he's agree. undoubted. I agree. I agree. I think Doctor yeah. Sleep is underrated as a movie. I love that movie. I still, I, I refuse to see it until I read the book. And the book's been sitting here for a few years because um, I really want to, uh, I want to enjoy the film. But I, I, I want to, uh, I want to enjoy it as it was intended in order first. But I'm, I'm, I, I believe it. I'm, I, I fantasizing the the day, the rainy day when I can watch the director's cut and blow through it. But I totally believe you. When I was watching A Wounded Fawn, I took a few notes in very much like stream of consciousness as they were coming. And I wrote, love the 16 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Love the great ornate weapon. Sarah mm-hmm. Lind has such presence. Dear God. Yes, she does. Love the Argento red. Josh does great crazy eyes. <laughs> Love the Red Owl. Amazing costume work. Nice red, red blood. Love a good fog in the woods situation. Also, without going to specifics, that it's one of my favorite end credit sequences in a while. And congratulations, by the way. You you committed fully to four minutes plus minutes of that. You just kept going. Congratulations. Yeah, I, uh, thank you. I, I am... So indebted to to Travis and the entire crew for having me aboard and trusting me to do it because it really is, it's a kind of an art film. It's a fashion film. Um, uh, that's why it looks so good. That that was Travis's intention, um, and the fact that uh, we, as a as Travis calls it, a band, were so down to get weird, down to take swings, and he set the playground um, as such. That's that's a dream. Like I've said this a couple times in the past, you know, seventy-two hours or whatever that I've been interviewed. But people, you know, someone asked me what my what my dream role would be. Is there anything I haven't played yet? And I said, you know what? I actually think I now that I'm realizing it, I think I've played it because I got to do pretty much everything I'm probably capable of doing. Um, uh, with Wounded Fawn, maybe short of you know, I'd love to do a dance sequence. I'm so uncoordinated, though. I do love to dance. Uh, I I did everything I kind of wanted to do, and also the fact that it's a feminist uh, sort of revenge film. We got to rake this, you know, narcissistic mansplaining psycho over the ra- over the, the the coals. That's very exciting to me. But I also get to play villainous and intimidate and bully, and then get to see a bully uh, intimidated and um, and flayed. Like that's it. Just hits so many parts of. Um, my excitement palette. I'm, that's why I'm so happy to be a part of it. It just it it it, it gets me on on uh, on all ends. Um, and uh, it 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 wouldn't be what it is without Travis's vision. Travis um, does what any great filmmaker would do and goes. I, I I'm I'm going to suggest you take this swing. 
with this Cassie choice, with this, you know, wardrobe designer who's also an artist, with this, you know, this film stock. And hey, why not? Let's let's try shooting an eleven minute uh, end sequence. You know, five minutes of which are for those of you who've seen the movie on the cutting room floor. But boy, they're five and change um, throughout the credit sequence itself. And like, you know, he he knew we could do it because he was like, yeah, I'm gonna cast this merry band of weirdos who I know can deliver. It really is impressive. Like they say, you know, directing is about choices, but he made so many interesting choices and like everything felt so confident and purposeful. Yeah. And that feels like a thing that's very easy to want to accomplish, but far, far harder to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And man alive, like everybody is just nailing it across the board. It's a really impressive movie and I, I absolutely loved it. Uh, yeah, thank you. I agree. I totally, I totally agree. I, I'm so proud of it. I was curious about one thing too that you know they say that chemistry on screen screen is there's some like alchemy to it that acting gonna get you so far but it's kind of this innate thing that people have mm-hmm. as it was pointed out I think Joe Lynch pointed out on his uh, Letterbox review the director of Mayhem which is a great movie mm-hmm. he mentioned about complimenting the lack of chemistry that you have you and Sarah have. <laughs> Which is very true and obviously very purposeful and great. Does that itself take work or is that just part of the individual character work and those competing energies meeting each other? It's competing energies meeting each other. It's, it's equal parts commitment. And also I think in part it is our, uh, I think, I think it would, I'd be remiss to, to not uh, to not call out Sarah and I's chemistry, at least as artists, or our willingness as artists to just kind of dive in and not overthink. We're both very much feelers, is what I can gather of Sarah's sort of process and disposition. Where once to just kind of like, okay, I know more or less who this is. I've been in this situation before, at least for her. Um, you know, what woman hasn't been in an odd situation or uncomfortable situation with with a, a man like Bruce? Yeah. Um, maybe not as a murderer. Um, but, uh, certainly in uncomfortable situations, whether on a date or otherwise, and we just kind of, we just kind of went for it. I think it's, I think it's totally the, the mastery of conflicting images and having two people who just kind of get each other. Um, uh, I'm, you know, I, I think I, I not, don't mean to speak for Travis on this, but I think Travis would agree. I think he, I think, um, you know, he let two people who knew what they were doing just kind of do their thing um there was very little kind of guiding he needed to do because we all just we all just got it like i got to what a thrill to be able to intimidate or to do my best as josh to play a character intimidating sarah and then to watch sarah like actually react to it you know yeah. that was such a such a thrill whenever he had, had messaged you i guess you'd mentioned about the movie did he distill it down into something like did he pitch it to you at all or describe it in a way to you of what the what he was looking to accomplish with it in terms of which in terms of that dynamic or the film itself in terms of just the the concept of the movie itself about what he was working on and hoping to accomplish with it it was uh I, you know he just kind of sent me he sent me the script with the deck that just laid the whole thing out so you know in in devouring the script the descriptions are so they're so helixed to what the execution what the intended execution and homage of the project was going to be that it was going to be very Raimi-esque and that there'd be in-camera effects the film stock was going to be a piece of the process the movie that we read and certainly the movie that I read when I opened the script for the first time was the movie that was shot and then some so I, I think I think we were all quite aware that this this wasn't just going to be any any old you know um, or any kind of say Rainy esque like homage or ripoff. It was going to be yeah. something kind of wholly visual, visual, and that's that's why we were all so stoked to do it. I mean, like one of my talk about one of my favorite scenes reading the script. I knew that I'd be staring up at fifty feet of spectral fabric like floating in the air. But that when you get there and you're actually experiencing that and getting the act opposite. Like, you know, you're reminded, oh, shit, this is why, not only why I love movies and making movies, but this is why I read the thing and wanted to do it is because I knew that this would be a magician's crew of merry fools uh, creating in-camera effects, creating, like, on-screen magic to this degree. So we, we all we all knew that we were in for something super special, but there was nothing like actually being there and seeing, like, holy shit, oh, no, it really is special. It really must be intoxicating to be on a movie like that or any other movie, I guess. But it's just like, oh, yeah, this is the essence of why we do what we do. This is why we're here. 
Yeah, yeah, it truly, it truly was. It, you know, it, it, that's the best way I can kind of describe it is that it, it indeed uh, reminds you why, uh, yeah, why we all signed up for this circus life, you know. Yeah. And also, it's it's a testament to, you know, getting as specific as possible and 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 making sure you're writing and creating with intention and not just for gimmick. I mean this film says so much about you could say the cycle of abuse but it's also there it's so inlaid with easter eggs i'm still learning what the kind of easter eggs and homages to certain artwork is yeah and greek mythology just as someone who is like such a bad student that just to be kind of looking back as like a grown man going holy shit like the intention here is out of control the homage is out of control the easter eggs are through the roof he didn't just write for gimmick. He didn't just, you know, Travis didn't didn't make this film. It's like, you know, an exercise and what cool stuff he could do on camera. It's like everything was bespoke. And that that's why I think it has created this kind of lasting effect or why I feel like it will have one. It's also, I think people are just, it, it came out that perfect time. I think we're all sort of, us genre fans just really want something that's fresh and then it will excite us because we're so used to the derivative. So what else? Absolutely. feels like it's been a good year for horror. There have been some good genre films that have come out this year that I've been pretty delighted by. It's always nice to see. In general, I guess it's been a good year for like more populist filmmaking. And as much as I love, you know, an indie or a deep depressing drama that's like a prestige drama, it's hard to beat a great genre film. So it's always nice to have that. It really is. It really is. And it's wild. I mean, it's like, even when they don't totally hit, it's why my first film was a genre film. Why my first film was, you know, horror skewing anyway, is because because I knew that the horror community would at least be forgiving and welcoming. Yeah. That was that was what was, you know, that's what's just so indelible to it and to our community. It's like, try almost anything. People will watch almost anything if it's in the genre because there's nothing like it. And you can apply, you can apply the, the that DNA to any type of story. Is it a family story? Is it a family adventure story? Is it just an adventure story? Is it a comedy? You can apply hard all of those kind of uh, all of the genres. That makes total sense. Which is actually a good transition to Blood Relatives. Noah Segan's directorial debut. Noah Segan, oh, yeah. former guest, great guy, really nice. I seem to remember when we talked like two years ago. I kind of geeked out over him having worked with M. Emmett Walsh. <laughs> At that wow, point, yeah. On Knives Out, because I had just rewatched Blood Simple at that point. What a legend. God, he's amazing. Oh, yeah, um, truly. Truly. When, when I was watching Blood Relatives, some of the notes I wrote, love that near dark esque opening shot as the sun rises in Texas. Love the very specific score. Noah has such an easygoing charm. Victoria Morales, who I was not aware of before, she's a natural, has such a natural screen presence. She's so good. She's incredible. I met her on uh, Natalie Morales' uh, Plan B, which is an American high film for Hulu. And oh, yeah. We yeah. had a scene together, and that's where I was like, oh, shit, she's, this is a star. She's got it. Whatever it is, she's got it. She's really natural, and she's great. Great to see John Proudstar in, in the moment, in, the, yes. in there a little bit. He's amazing mm -hmm. on Reservation Dogs. Such a great show. Um, Icon, yeah. He's amazing. I loved your nice Renfield cameo. <laughs> That was really fun. I'd forgotten you were in it. I was like, oh, that's so fun. That's awesome. Love father-daughter moments, but through the prism of mm -hmm. both father-daughter, but father-daughter vampire moment. Those are really mm -hmm. nice. It's just a really pleasant, nice movie, as, as dark as there are moments at times. But I really just loved it. It was like a warm blanket film. I loved it. That's what, that's what Noah set out to make. It's a movie essentially, you know, as uh, an homage to fatherhood and his transition into fatherhood. It's the, you know, the, the young dad of two young young kids um he knew exactly the type of movie he wanted to make he went out of his way to or i'd say dug his heels in to avoid vampire gore and genre to a degree um while we were honoring uh you know the shutter mandate especially to see some blood everybody was all signed up to do a family film because it's like you can't you can't do better than the bloodiest best you know vampire movies we've already seen versions of 30 days of night and blade yeah. Um, and near dark for that matter. So take it in the other direction. I think that's why I've been able to make a splash. Like this is technically the type of movie that you can watch with your teenager. Um, and, and it, it, it is a family film. It's, it's, I don't know. I've never seen anything like it. And it, it, it does harken back to that kind of, uh, you know, that, that late eighties, early nineties kind of genre horror film that, you know, genre film with, uh, with heart that you, that you can, you know, that hopefully will be canonized by, by kids, especially perhaps young girls. 
No, I completely agree. Uh, in terms of, I've never seen anything quite like it. And, you know, I was thinking about how with certain known genres or like known tropes within a genre or known characters like vampires or honestly like the Joker rule, once something permeates that cultural zeitgeist enough, there become expectations about what tropes or what characteristics are defined by this thing or define that thing. So then you kind of seemingly typically have to meet those expectations. And for this to kind of go against that, uh, you know, consciously to go more in a slightly different direction, but kind of bridge that gap, I thought was really effective. And not everybody would do that because, you know, there are certain certain greatest hits you just kind of typically want to hit with these type of things. And I think he got there without doing everything. Does that make sense? Like, I thought it rode that yeah. line really well. I, I Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, they, what do they say about uh, a great horror film or a great genre film is a great drama first. It's like, you know, you, if, if you take the genre element out of it and it's still a good film, that's a great movie. And that's, I think, what mm. this is. This is, a, you know, a daddy-daughter story, um, a Jewish daddy-daughter road trip movie for that matter. And um, I don't know that the success is in the, is in the heart of that. Absolutely. Like I saw somebody compare it. It was something like a paper moon through the prism of like near dark or just yeah, more other yeah. genre. But in terms of that, it rides that line again, that vampire film and family daughter drama situation really well. It's just a really mm-hmm. nice movie. It's an absolute success. Yeah. So thank you very much. I agree. I agree. I think it's going to have a, a, a nice long life to it, you know, and I, I hope that, I hope that, um, say, you know, Shutter folks who discover it for the next six months before it hits VOD will like rope their family into viewings mm. of it. But uh, if you know if that's not the case, I hope when it goes to VOD that we can kind of, you know, push to so that younger audiences will have a chance to to, to see something that might act as something in the gateway horror. I could absolutely see it getting a groundswell of support as people see it, and it feels like a very classic like word of mouth film, and it will, it, it'll so. it'll spread. Yeah, I think so. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. You've talked about this ad nauseum, I'm sure, but just to, I did again rewatch Darkman last night. I saw it in the theater when I was a child, when I was like uh, s- seven. Wow, yes. Those are, that's a good family right there. Yeah, my dad also, when I was a kid, took us to Pulp Fiction too. So it goes both ways. Yes. The pawn shop scene was an eye opener, to say the least. Yes. In Pulp Fiction. Like, what's happening? Yeah. Wow, I do not fully understand this, and that's maybe for the best. <laughs> But Darkman, the first time I rewatched it in a while, but I was just marveling at what a beautiful madman Sam Raimi is. Beautiful. It's amazing. It really is. I've forgotten how incredible the carnival sequence is. What a brilliant man. He directed Truly. the shit out of that movie. It's incredible. Truly. Truly. And I didn't realize he had done. I forgot. Like as a kid, I saw glimpses of like Crime Wave, which he wrote with the Coen brothers. I still need to see that, yeah. It's it's a tough one for me. It's a beautifully orchestrated. It's like full of kind. It's kind of like Dick Tracy esque, you know. I think he was kind of that was on the soft runway to to, to making Dark Man was cartoonish kind of characters and violence. I mean, it, it truly is like you know, it's 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 it could be a Dick Tracy film. It's uh you know farcical in that degree. Dark Man, yeah. I mean. He wanted to do Batman. He couldn't get the rights. This was obviously years years before Spider-Man. Batman 89 had just come out and killed. And um, though it was a, a tough experience for him, um, a big hunter cameo, well, we must have put it in the water heater. Uh, though it was a tough experience for him, I'm so glad that I discovered it as a kid. I popped that VHS in. I don't know why. I guess because it looked like a Batman movie. It looked like a superhero movie. Yeah. Um, it... it I, it took, for some reason, I had like put to bed uh, the fact that I watched that film many, many times as a kid, and then sort of rediscovered it years later. And I have to say, I bought it um, on on digital, and I was I was so excited and down as someone who does not watch movies more than once, at least very often. There's just a small handful of films I could rewatch it a few times in a month and still enjoy the ride every time and it really really affected me as a kid and so just when i sort of remembered that i had watched that film um infinitum that uh i sort of went oh shit has anybody touched this ip at all um yeah and uh you know i just kind of realized that i boy would that be sort of a, a dream ip to touch because it is a horror hero movie we don't get many horror hero movies well, and also to your point, like, um, there's so much to mine in that movie. He gets to do every trick he's got. Just the, the, the wide swath of, like, the canvas of that movie. 
there is so much that can be done with that, I'm sure, from your perspective. Mm-hmm. And so many different tricks and different things. When I talked to George Basil, um, one thing he mentioned was that he was excited to see what you do in the future. Because mm. he he wanted to, because he didn't think we'd necessarily quite gotten the full Josh Rubin experience yet mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of unleashing everything. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Like he said that, by the way, he was careful to phrase that because he didn't want to undermine anything you've done before because he loves everything you've done. But oh, I love him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, look it's, it's tough for most of us filmmakers to, to do what we want to do. I mean, Guillermo del Toro, you, you'd think he, he'd done it all. And he goes, you know, I have 22 scripts that, that are sitting here unproduced. Um, I hope that I get, at least with each film, each project that I do, I get an opportunity to actually unpack my my weird and lay it out to the world. Uh, Darkman feels like, if I were to ever be able to touch anything like it, it feels like the opportunity to touch on everything that I love. I probably won't ever direct a Batman film. I mean, never say never, but boy, did I, I my love of Batman and my love of horror, especially my love of Freddy Krueger, they... Um, there was a Venn diagram that sort of occurred with Darkman where it's like, oh my gosh, it's the prosthetic uh, makeup design and action and sort of um, pacing that really excites me as a, as a fan and the genre kid. Um, And think about what you could do with that today. uh, I I think that would, that would be, uh, it it would be a a, a congealing or coalescing of, of everything that I've that I'm excited about, and so that, that that might be kind of a version to exploit it. The tricky thing is, as a just as a gig economy dude, someone who lives paycheck to paycheck, and you take on say a film project, whether an offer or otherwise, you know these are year to year plus long commitments. Yeah. So it's it's going to be hard to to um, you know take on or not not commit to certain things, you know, hoping that something. So an original of yours will will go someday, but it seems like you know the road to get there is sometimes by doing projects that that just light up certain parts of what you're excited about. You know, the next movie might be all about speed and action, a yeah. little bit of horror. The one after that might be all character performance. I get to, you know, I get to do some gore with great gore effects. But for all of those points to kind of meet in the middle, you know, it takes um, Palmer cameo. Uh, it takes a lot to. It takes a lot to, to find those dream projects, which, um, you know, which hopefully, hopefully I'll get the opportunity to do. Fingers crossed, because I'm, I'm excited to see, to see what you do in the future. I do want to ask you one thing. Inevitably, you've been asked this before, but I was curious about your perspective as somebody. I've, I've never talked to somebody with this specific situation, but I know it's been talked about probably a lot, or maybe I've just thought about it a lot, but the, mm-hmm. like the sketch director, actor to horror pipeline. You know, this year we've had Jordan Peele's Nope. Zach Kreger's Barbarian, both incredible and, and just tonal masterworks, I think. And also Duncan Birmingham has been on the show twice. He had Who Invited Them, and he is a comedy person making his first feature. That's a horror right. feature. But can you speak to your experience with that just a little bit in terms of how has that helped you to craft, to, to get an understanding of tone, but also like the beats that kind of work in conjunction with each other? Yeah, I love this question. I was trying to kind of articulate what it is. Big Palmer cameo. <laughs> this one, this is going to be a fun episode for people on my end. I, I apologize, but also my bathroom is very grateful. I'm glad you're asking about this because I was finally able to figure out the right words to articulate what it is about like comedy folk doing genre. And I think it's that because in comedy, we push boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that's just in comedy, that's just we we are bred to do we were all born from zach Kreger and peel to even john krasinski and beyond we were all kind of born with the you know bitten by the comedy bug and inherent in being a comedian or someone who works in sketch is the poking prodding jester the boundary pusher and i think that that's that is a a perfect complement to a genre where the bigger and the splashier, the bloodier, sometimes the angrier, um, and more wicked and twisted, uh, the better and the more yeah. exciting. And um, I think that's I think that's why you see so many of us. I think that's why the um, you know the the comics genre um, projects do so well, or at least you know make make the splash that they do, is because we're observationists. We we can go we go out of our way to. Um, I don't know, to, to hold the mirror up to society in a way, but then also to skewer it 
uh, yeah. in, in a very specific way, in an observationist kind of way. Yeah, I never thought about like the similar, for lack of a better phrase, like the, the similar watch this energy of it all that they both kind of live in. It's just exciting to see, especially that more people with that background you know, like yourself, are getting the opportunities to play in that genre because I mentioned Nope before, but Nope, I think, is it's maybe my favorite movie of the year. I think it's incredible. I can't stop thinking about it. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. It's very, very impressive. And and Barbarian and, um, like I said, uh, Who Invited Them is also great. Also on Shudder, so watch that. That's but, right. Uh, Edited by Patrick Lawrence, who did Scare Me. Yes, I'd actually really like to talk to him because he's done so many he's, great things. Yeah. He seems super talented. He's great. You should, I would love to hear an interview with Patrick. He he doesn't get to talk about his craft enough, and he's also a musician and a director. Yeah, you should totally get him okay. on the show. He's killer. He seems really cool. Yeah, okay. He's great. Okay, we're running up against it. First of all, thank you for doing this. Thank you for your time and the conversation. My really pleasure. Thank it. you, and apologies for the rigmarole uh, sonically, but uh, I think it'll make for a really interesting listen for all of our, our fans out there. It's definitely a unique oral experience, and I'll take it, mm -hmm. so thank you for that. Mm -hmm. But also... What all do we want to reiterate, do we want to promote before we close this thing down? Check out not just Wounded Fawn and Blood Relatives and Scare Me on Shudder, but uh, just just get a Shudder subscription. You know, AMC is doing some layoffs thing. They're suffering the um, the slings and arrows and ills of the uh, the era of streaming. It's a tough, tough one out there, but boy, have they been ever supportive of genre filmmakers. So... Get a Shutter subscription. It's only a few bucks a month, and um, just enjoy everything that they've curated over there. It's just it's pretty rad, or at the very least, try the free trial. It's it's uh, doesn't cost nothing. It's just like what a ride. Hundred percent. To your point, though, I I think pound for pound in terms of any streaming service, it is the I think the most impeccably curated streaming service out there. I agree. Their taste is fantastic. I think. Out of control, completely. Just out of control. Really, really impressive. And so worth the money. I'm a subscriber. I highly recommend it. So, yes. And also, yeah, thank you again for doing this. My pleasure, man. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, as I go to the quick uh, landing, thank you all for listening. Please stay safe. Please take care. Please be kind to yourself. Please be kind to others. And, you know, lead with empathy. Stay safe. Thank you again. Bye-bye.